Good morning. My name is Mackenzie Houston, and today we'll be reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, which can be found on page 984 in your pew Bible. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. talks about things that we tend to go to and do rather than turn to Jesus. It's places that we go for comfort or approval or power or control. And so it starts with identity in Jesus, invites us to be honest about other places we're tempted to put identity. The call there is to repentance is the second part. And then it says, well, don't just like trust God and stop doing bad things. What do you move towards? So the section that we started today from chapter 3 verses 12 to 17 tells us then what to put on. If it's take off these old ways of living, then how do you actually live? What does it mean to follow Jesus? So it gives us like a framework and a a command of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But notice the logic of the flow from his identity, turning away from false identities. This is what it would look like to follow Jesus. So we've talked about kind of who we are and what it means to live like us. It's kind of a framework for how we're talking. Well, it goes from there, not just to academically or these theoretical ideas or philosophical concepts, but to live out in our real lives. So it moves into personal relationships from there. Then it will talk about social and vocational settings. And then it talks about engaging with people who don't yet know Jesus. That's the way the passage kind of flows. And inside of that, it gives us 
some core practices like to read the Bible and to pray together and to worship and, and live in community. So if that's a summary of the text, then we think as a church, if we could focus on 10 things this thing identifies for us, a gospel identity, repentance, learning to walk by the Spirit, if we could be in the Scriptures, if we could pray together, if we could be in community together, if we cultivated hearts of worship, and if we learned how to apply those things in our personal relationships in our jobs and in the world around us, and then with people that don't yet know Jesus, if we focus there, then we think we would be on track with what it meant to follow Jesus. I think those are like the primary colors. You could surely do more or add to that, but you can kind of boil it down. So even if I say that and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're exploring Christianity, uh, this text gives us kind of a summary of, of what it actually would look like. And what we're trying to do is focus in on the identity Jesus gives us and then some of the implications of that. So last year we walked through that whole text kind of systematically. There's seven sermons summarizing what I just did in a couple of minutes. So if you're lost as I say that, you may want to dig into those. Actually, when I candidated for the job here of pastor in November of 2020, I preached through this text again. So there's a two-sermon version of it then. We've, we've tried to hit it a couple of different ways. And this year really what we're trying to focus on is, okay, what is that identity? What does it mean to be rooted and hidden in Christ? And then what does that make us be? So we talked about being an honest people last week. This week we'll talk about being a forgiving people. If we're really trusting in Jesus, then we can live out the grace that he's given us. We'll talk about being a thankful people, being a relational people, and then being an outward-facing people. So those are how it frames us or what it makes us do or how it allows us to live if we've trusted in Jesus. So that's kind of the summary of what's going on. And in the space there I want to encourage you with is, the message of Christianity is not, here's the stuff you do so that God would love you and you can be part of the family. Instead, the way it always starts is, here's what God has done. Here's what he offers you. You receive that by grace. And as you receive that, it, it's real. It, it really changes you. It starts to affect your relationships, your postures, your attitudes, your, your reactions to situations. So it never starts with what you do to get an identity. It starts by giving you an identity in Jesus. And then from there, it tells you how to live. So not for an identity, but from an identity. That's the good news of the God of the Bible who took your place and did everything that you were supposed to do and couldn't do. He did it for you, forgave you from all the brokenness that you have fumbled into the rest of your life, and now has made a way for you to be whole and forgiven and set free. Even the way verse 12 that Mackenzie read, right, to be chosen and holy and beloved. These are identity markers that that he gives us. So that's where we want to spend our time. And then say, if that's the identity, then, then how do we play that out? How do we live it out? And, and the, the goal is to have reflexes, not just a long list of things, but to begin to have a reflex that's rooted in the truth of the gospel. So that your primary thought in your life as a follower of Jesus was, if Jesus has died already to pay the penalty for my sin and, and I already have a secure identity, I'm already established in him, I'm already loved by him, I've got nothing else to prove, then when this situation is overwhelming or I face conflict or I feel stress or I, I'm uncertain what to do or, or I got caught, what do I reflexively do from that almost as a habit rather than simply following commands? The Bible uses illustrations like the kingdom of God. Is, it's like leaven or yeast that spreads throughout a dough. It's almost imperceptible. You almost can't see it, but it's, but it's real and it takes real impact in the life of God's people. So what we're trying to do is 
cultivate a gospel identity, kind of work that into the dough of our lives so that it actually impacts and spreads where our reflexes, our natural overflow, the things that happen as we encounter life in the wild, out, out there, not in these walls, but where you really live, what you would be doing, saying, reacting with would be grounded in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So, so our goal isn't just to master the text, it's for our reflexes to be redeemed and, and to, be, to be changed. Because you've practiced building your own identity. You've practiced establishing your own righteousness. You've practiced kind of holding on to what you thought you needed to do to make yourself okay. And that has all kinds of expressions to it. Most of them have jagged edges. And we're unlearning like an orphan mindset that had to protect ourselves. And we're learning an adopted mindset where we've been given an identity. And this morning we focus in on that reflex of forgiveness. Let me just stop for a second. I realize to talk about forgiveness is to kind of name a category that is where your life is lived. I mean, all of your relationships are marked by either the, the need for or absence of or restoration due to forgiveness. I mean, it marks everything. I was even thinking throughout the scriptures, maybe we could even say the whole Bible is a story connected to forgiveness. Our need for forgiveness, God's promise to forgive, what it looks like to live that out. You see people wrestling with their own brokenness. You see generations who've refused to forgive and the consequences of that. You just, you just see it all over the place because it is what marks our, our life. So, so to talk about forgiveness is to bring you into a very applicable topic and one that's not sterile, one that has a background. It has tears. It has sweat. It has blood connected to it in your story. So I want to just pray for you and invite you to pray as we begin and invite you not to shut down. I know sometimes churches can be overly simplistic and we can just kind of command something or unnuanced say something and you can be thinking about your situation marked with abuse or with a really dark history or shame or things that nobody else knows or things that happened so long ago you'd rather not even think about them. You're tempted to explain away what the scriptures say because of the gravity and the complexity of, of what you've dealt with. And I just want to invite you this morning, if I say we're talking about forgiveness and you're tempted to pull back, not, not to do that. I think God understands what you've gone through. He knows what you've dealt with and he really cares about it. He has this, this word in mind for you this morning actually to speak to the needs you have with this overwhelming category of forgiveness. And as I'm saying that, if you feel numb to it, if you feel callous to it, if you're like, yeah, sure, forgiveness, that's easy. <laughs> Can I invite you to lean in a little bit? Can I invite you to open up your heart and your mind to not just simply saying no big deal, but genuinely moving towards a gospel-oriented understanding of forgiveness? So, so I want to invite you, whether it feels um, so cliche or it feels just too overwhelming, uh, would you just ask God to meet you, help you, and then we'll We'll step into this text. I really just want to follow the logic of the, of the text, but I um, want to invite you to pray first. So would you bow your head one more time? As I say that, let me just give you a second. Would you just take a deep breath and ask God to meet you now? Ask Him to speak to you? Again, if your heart feels callous and cold, ask Him to, to help you. If it feels overwhelmed and your pulse is racing, would you ask Him to help you?
So God, we bring our hearts to you in this moment. And these people didn't pick this topic. They, they're happening upon it. It's being pushed in front of them. But you knew what their stories were, what was happening around them. You knew what they needed to hear this morning. So I just pray for grace to receive from you. God, would you do some healing work where we have been um, stung through topics of forgiveness? Would you do some courageous building work where we feel overwhelmed? There's a stamina we need. There's a compassion we need. Uh, there's a wisdom that we need. And, and all of that is secondary to a vision of the way you forgive us. A full understanding of the gospel message of what Christ endured for us. How he made forgiveness possible. How he thinks about us this side of forgiveness. So, so Holy Spirit, would you do a deep work inside of us? And I want to ask uh, I've got notes and I've prepared things, but you have a particular word for each of them. So would you, would you speak to them this morning by your spirit to the situations they find themselves? And then would the impact be healing now and then this change down the road? Uh, reflexes that are um, formed and shaped by the good news of the gospel. Would you, would you do that inside of us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Forgiveness. Because of what Christ has done, we get to be a forgiving people. We are a forgiving people. And it, it matches the heart of God, the character of God, to say that about us. And maybe logically you could say if last week was about being an honest people, honesty gets us ready to think about forgiveness. Because remember last week we talked about honesty, not just of you be honest about your brokenness, which is a big part of it, right? It's chapter 5, or sorry, chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. It, it names things in black and white to invite you to be honest about your brokenness and your struggle with sin and the way things have like haunted you for a long time. So there is a be honest about yourself. And that will let you actually be compassionate towards other people. The more you realize how much you need grace, you'll be able to extend that to other people. When we lose sight of our own humanity, we lose sight of our own need, we can move towards either numbness or judgmentalism or kind of minimizing the things around us. So the more honest you are about your own need, the more, more generous you'll be to think about other people's needs. That's a big part of it. But, but not just honest about yourself, actually also honest about what Jesus has done. There's a hopefulness to be, to be fully honest is to say, even though it's dark right now, the scriptures say God has made a way for me to be forgiven and set free. So this thing I'm trying to be honest about has a connection to the all-powerful God who promises to heal and redeem. It says that I'm actually already hidden with him in Christ. The power of sin has actually already been broken. I'm trying to live into that, not on my own effort, not by my own requirements, not by my own earnestness but because of what Jesus has done because Christ died was buried and rose again and promises to return there is hope for me as I'm honest to not let shame have the loudest word to not let fear have the loudest word to let the gospel of Jesus speak loudly over us and to embrace a full understanding of our sin that has a sacrifice that's already been paid and redemption that's made possible so that we can be a courageous people. So, so that's where we were last week. And that just logically to me sets us up to think about forgiving people. Because when you're honest, it might mean that you bring a confession to somebody. Maybe things that have been in the shadows for a long time that they don't know about. It happened maybe years ago or happened in secret. And now for you to be honest and to step into the light, you might actually share something with someone that's going to require them or offer them or put them in a space where now they need to think about forgiving you. So there's a connection there. 
it also cuts the other direction. If, if we're saying let's be an honest people, then for someone to bring something to you, for someone to think about uh, how you've impacted them, how, how they've been offended, what, they, what they've experienced you as in, in meetings or in your home and all different situations, it actually would require maybe a, a posture for you to ask for forgiveness or extend forgiveness. So, so honesty begets some sort of forgiveness. And Christians aren't the only ones who talk about forgiveness. It's all over the world. Again, I think it's how you live your life. But we often settle for really small definitions of forgiveness. Like, like we'll say something like, man, why can't you just forgive and forget? We can just get over this. I said I was sorry. Why can't we just move on? And the spirit of that might be okay to say, can you not hold this against me? That, that might be a good posture. But there's something much deeper in the Bible. I think the Bible actually says, hey, forgive and remember. Not, not as a grudge, but remember what Christ has done. Remember who you are. Let that meta-narrative of God's grace now influence and shape the forgiveness that you're thinking through. You hold it with kind of a, an understanding of what Christ has done, so you forgive and you remember. Because to forgive is actually to, to pay the penalty yourself for the offense. It's like a, a lamp that's broken. Uh, you could say, no problem, I forgive you. But you still don't have a lamp. you got to pay for that lamp. You do without the lamp. Something has to happen there for that lamp to be dealt with. right? So forgiveness is you saying essentially, I will pay the price for this offense. It's costly. It actually has a vulnerability to it. And Jesus embodies this for us because for him to forgive us was for him to die in our place on the cross, to bear the weight for our sin. He even says to be a ransom for us. So, so Forgiveness is not uniquely Christian, but Christian forgiveness goes much, much deeper than simply saying it's fine. Because there's justice. There's something about the offense that needs to be dealt with, and you get to absorb that as a Christian. And you also get to look to Jesus as the one who ultimately absorbed the penalty for all of our sins. So, so it's a deeper sort of thing to engage Christianly about Forgiveness, and, and when you understand what Christ has done, then you're free. You don't have to hide. You can bring it out. You can ask for forgiveness knowing what Christ has done is enough to pay the ultimate penalty for your sin so you can ask other people around you for forgiveness. Okay, if that's an introduction, look with me in verse 12. What I want to do is just walk through the logic of the text. He's going to talk about the, the identity that makes forgiveness possible. And he's going to talk about attitudes that come from understanding that you've been forgiven and then actions that are tied to forgiveness. So identity and then action or attitudes and then action. Look in verse 12. He says, put on then. This is identity language. Put these clothes on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Stop right there. Before he tells you what to do, he reminds the follower of Jesus who they are. Before he says you got to go do this, he says, hey, Remember this. Now we're only 12 verses into this whole section. He spent four verses talking about our identity. For him to come back to it right now, it's almost as if we struggle to remember our identity, which is, should be encouraging to you. To see in this text, the need to be reminded so quickly matches your need to be reminded regularly. You're constantly struggling with what some have called identity amnesia. You just have heard it so long from the world. You've lived into a false identity so reflexively. It's hard sometimes to stop and remember what God says is true about you. This is not all that's true, but look at these three things he says. He says, first, if you follow Jesus, you're chosen. 
So far from having to earn righteousness, the Bible talks about God compassionately, mercifully choosing people regardless of what they have done. It's not even like unconditional love. It's contra-conditional love. It's contrary to the conditions while you were his enemy, while you were dead. He loved you and he chose you is the way the Bible talks to those who follow Jesus. So he starts by there and says, hey, remember, you've already been chosen. You're not competing. You're not auditioning. You're not trying out. You're not trying to maintain this. You already are chosen. And I already see you as holy. And you go like, man, I know what I'm capable of. No way holy is a good descriptor. But remember, what Jesus has done is cleansed you from all unrighteousness. How much amnesia do you have around that? Because the voice of shame is so loud. You have a real accuser as an enemy who wants to remind you of your brokenness, your inconsistency, your failures, the things that are hidden in the shadows that you say to yourself. And if somebody found that out, surely I would be rejected and would fall out of these relationships. So for him to just stop and say, hey, remember, not only are you chosen, but I'm not just tolerating you. I've made you holy. You're already clean. You're already clean. You're already clean. Far from having to do something to be pure, he's already made you that way because of what Jesus has done. And he says, you're beloved. Not just tolerated. Not just pardoned and then accepted. You actually are delighted in. That Jesus died in your place on the cross because he was crazy about you. He, he loved you. He, he chose you as a bride, the scriptures say. There's this romantic pursuit in the heart of God towards his people. So, so he says, you've been chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved. These things are things that are said of Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one in 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus is the holy one in John chapter 6. Jesus is supremely beloved in Matthew chapter 3. So what he's doing is actually sharing with you his identity. He's saying, this is who I am. Let me give that to you. You're not earning it. You're not deserving it. And the identity is rooted not just in what you've done, but what he's done, which starts with this understanding of Jesus dying in your place to forgive you of your sin. That's what makes this possible. He's not just giving nice words. He's not just complimenting you. He's saying, hey, remember, I already died. And when I died, I chose to forgive your sin. And when I died, I made a way for you to be holy and forgiven. And when I died... I prove to you my love. Before he ever calls you to attitudes or actions, he reminds of their identity. This is deep. It's layered. There's a ton in those words. The Bible gives even more descriptions of what's true about your identity. But, but those words, I think, are nourishment to your soul. And they, they give you hope that you could actually be honest. You could come out of hiding or you could endure things that are difficult as you think about being chosen being holy, and being beloved. Okay, so, so that's the identity. And this identity, it bears fruit. It's not just an academic thing. And so he goes on then to actions or, or then attitudes that actually come from this. So he, he starts with attitudes. Look at the next words there. After he said, you're chosen, holy, and beloved, look in verse 12. He says, put on then compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Okay, Quite a contrast to where we were last week of these other clothes we wear of anger and wrath and malice and slander and, and sexual immorality and 
evil desire and covetousness, these other things that we, we normally are marked by, these other attitudes of our heart that belong to the old way, they belong to the flesh. This passage is saying because you have this new identity, you're able to engage in these things that are otherworldly. But, but they match who God is. He is compassionate. He is kind. He, he is full of humility. He, he is meek, the scriptures say, and he is incredibly patient with you. In Exodus chapter 34, we get one of the first kind of definitions of who God is. This is Old Testament. This would be thousands of years before this passage that we're looking at today was written. It's Moses interacting with God. God wants to tell Moses what he's like. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, if you're taking notes, God passes before Abraham and he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, or I am, I am. This is who I am. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then he stops and says, but who will by no means clear the guilty and will by no means just simply absolve the iniquity. So we have this tension of the justice of God and the grace of God, which as we get to the end of our time this morning, Communion shows us that Jesus is the way that God solved the problem of his ultimate justice and his mercy. God could be both just and he could be forgiving why he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. This is the hope that a Christian has. But I want you to see from the Exodus 34 passage, when God's describing himself, he uses these kinds of words. Compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. So here's the idea. What Jesus invites us into by his grace is to live out the identity that God himself actually embodies. He's not just saying here's a list of behaviors that good people do. He's saying this is the necessary connection you have to me. And as you understand who you are and what I've done, this begins to change inside of you. And understanding that we need compassion, understanding that God has shown kindness, Understanding that, that we actually are prideful people and he was humble to die in our place. That God is incredibly patient with us. Those things begin to change and shift our hearts. It reminds us what we've actually received. And the identity that's rooted there then says, hey, live this out. Because you struggle to forgive other people when you forget that you needed compassion. That you've needed to be, have kindness shown to you. That, that you needed somebody to humble themselves and forgive you even though you've hurt them. You need someone to come meekly, not high-handedly. You need somebody to be incredibly patient with you. So can you see the connections there? These attitudes come from who God is, and they're the result of receiving His grace. And as we get ready now to come to the next section that talks about bearing with one another and forgiving one another, those become like the framework for why we would do that. Because of what God's already done for us and because of how God's shown us this, what we've understood our need to be, now we can move towards it. Because a passage like Matthew 18, and if you're following the reading guides you read this week, it tells this story of this unmerciful servant who had an incredible debt and the king actually forgave it. And the math is phenomenal. It's something like he was owed um, a, a, a currency that was worth 200 years wages. And he owed 10,000 times that. So, so he owed a number he could never pay. It's a, it's a mind-blowing number. The king forgives him because he asks for compassion and for mercy. The same language 
that's in this text. He asks for that. The king, representing Jesus, forgives. And then the text has this scandalous turn in it where this servant moves out of the presence of the king where he's just experienced incredible grace. He forgets what just happened. He goes to another servant who the text says owes him like a hundred days wages. Not, not multiple years of ten thousands, but a hundred days wages. Not nothing, but in reference, it's almost like nothing. And instead of showing the compassion he received, he begins to choke this other servant out. And he demands that you pay what you owe me, he says to this other servant. And it's a scandalous story about those who forget their identity and what's happened inside of them. And when that happens, we're able to hold grudges. We're able to not forgive. We're able to say that person doesn't deserve that. We're able to distance ourselves from people because with this amnesia of our identity and this amnesia of what we receive sets us up to be impatient rather than bear. Sets us up to be harboring a grudge rather than actually forgiving. So, so this character here, receiving it, just stopping for a moment and acknowledging, man, I have received so much grace. So that leaven that's working into the dough of our lives is actually changing our reflexes as we understand how much we've been forgiven. Let me try to press this into an illustration. So you've heard something like, don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes, or a mile in her high heels, or a mile in their steel-toe boots, or chacos, or whatever you want. You've heard, you've heard something like this, right? And the essence of that exhortation is, hey, don't judge because this person probably has some context. There's some, there's some story. What you observed in a moment, whether it's even a long relationship or, or this nano expression of an of a, uh, encounter with them, probably has something else going on. So, so be careful not to judge this person until you know what they've been through. And it's not a way of excusing things. It's not like saying if you had a bad day, then you, you, you have the right to fly off the handle and yell at people and shame them and bully them. It's not saying that, but it is saying, hey, it helps to explain a little bit. It doesn't excuse it, but it explains just a little bit when you can understand where someone's coming from. And you could go to all different layers, right? What their childhood was like, what they're dealing with currently with suffering, how their relationships have been, what, what this reminds them of in other moments. I'm constantly aware of like, as a pastor, people have had experiences with pastors. So when they sit down with me, they don't come neutral. They come with a history. They come with ideas. They come with thoughts and ways they need to protect themselves, ways they need to be careful and wise. So there's spaces like this, understand and just stop. Like, hey, what's the story this person is bringing helps you not, not to be judgmental. Okay, I wonder if we could take that even deeper and not just stop with like that immediate context of their life and not judge a person until we've walked a mile in their shoes, but but to actually think about not judging a person until we've taken into account what Jesus has walked for them and what he's walked for you. So put that moment, that interaction, that, that conversation, that relationship, put it in a much bigger, like a meta-narrative context, not just that exchange or not just the decades of their life, but, but put it in context of a gracious God who paid the penalty for their sin who made it possible for yours to be forgiven as well. And don't judge a person until you've like put that whole thing in place and you remember the road Jesus walked on their behalf as you think about what they're owed, what they deserve, how you could respond, what, what, what it would mean to go forward in a healthy way. To take all of that and to put it in the context of what Jesus has already done 
for you. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is after when he reminds us of our identity. And then he ties these attitudes back to the identity of God and to the way God has actually treated us. He's saying, hey, think about forgiveness in light of who you are and what you have received. And then you're ready to do what he says in verse 13 with some actions. And he gives two actions. One is to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, then to forgive each other. And he gives a reference point. This is what we've been talking about the whole time. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Okay, there's identity rooted in Jesus and what he's done. There's attitudes that reflect what he's done, what he's given you that we're called to embody and to engage with. When we forget them, we struggle to actually do the next part, which is to bear with people and then to actually forgive them. It's a command to the people of God. Did you catch the one another nature of that? Bear with one another. And you have options, right? When you have a complaint against somebody else, you could hold it against them. You could run them down behind their back. You could jump up to chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. You've got lots of choices of what you could do there instead of patiently, kindly, humility, meekly, patiently engage with them. You could actually hold it against them. You could, you could exaggerate. You could say in that space that person's not deserving of love. But instead he says, bear with one another. Give a complaint. Actually move towards forgiving one another and not just because that's what good people do not just because that's nice he's not about niceness what he's about is applying what God has done for us right so as the Lord has forgiven you so you must forgive you have other options but what he's trying to do is compel you with the gospel nature of what Jesus has already done to say you've received this now do this what kind of people are we we're people that are so overwhelmed so consumed, so, so influenced by the love of God for us that when someone has done something, when we have a complaint against another, when, when something needs the patient response that, that we actually have to give to this moment that's awkward or painful or confusing, we're reflexively engaging with that because we think about what God has done. And the, the marker, the primary orientation is, as the Lord has forgiven you. So he says to bear with one another, which gives us a moment or two of honestly to say like the church is weird. There's lots of opportunity in this room to bear with one another, to bear with weaknesses, to bear with awkwardness, to bear with misunderstandings, to bear with unmet expectations, to bear with longings that you have that actually get discarded, to watch somebody else kind of have what you want or somebody else do what you feel called to. Those all are expressions and opportunities and context for us to bear with one another. Last night, my wife had a work event and we were at the Puttery, which was a pretty cool event downtown. Um, and as we're, not downtown, it's in the plaza, which is different than downtown, but from here it feels like downtown. Anyway, we're at the Puttery and uh, we're at doing the happy hour thing and chips and dip and different wings. And uh, we're always just doing like, hey, so what does your spouse do? Are you on team? Or, so it comes to the what do you do question. This is my favorite question as a pastor at a party. Just kidding. Everything changes as soon as that question gets asked because I go from like this normal dude to like, oh, oh, okay. Let's talk about some of that stuff. It, it always gets, it always, always, always gets weird. So, which I'm okay with. I'm okay with it. So if it needs to get weird between us, it's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't mess with me. I've, I've been this way for a long time. So, so in that space, it goes to that spot and the, the guy I'm talking to first just launches into this church drama story of how his church split in the last year, 
Like half everybody left. There was this big nefarious kind of motivation behind the scenes and nobody knew about it. There were multiple emails going around. And the whole thing he did for about seven minutes with a pretty much stranger was saying, oh, the church is awkward. The church is hard. The church has jagged edges. As people are trying to live out their identity, they tend to harm one another. They have this amnesia and they, they behave poorly. So that, that's the dude on my left. So I'm like, hey, all right, cool, man. Turn, turn this way. To my right, same deal. 30 years older, different gender, same story. And in that moment, as we're talking, I just actually said out loud, I'm sorry the church is so weird. And she says, it is weird, isn't it? And I thought, yeah, it is weird, isn't it? It is weird, isn't it? We, we are weird. And we're in process. And we're growing. And we need compassion and mercy and patience we need to extend that to one another, but to be part of the church is to put yourself in a context where the actions of bearing with one another will be a regular reality. Because you'll have complaints against one another. People will do things, say things, not do things, not say things that will hurt you. You'll misunderstand and you'll have perfectly understood what happened and need to extend grace to that. So, so bearing with one another... And then he says, it's not just that. Move all the way then to forgiving each other. Okay, so you're going to think I'm making this part up. Pastors love to make stuff up, but this is true. So we park in this garage, and we're a little bit lost, to be quite honest. We, it was a valet parking lot of a really fancy restaurant. The guy saw my minivan and was like, cool, I'll just let you in for free. I don't even know why I did it, but so we get, we get in there. But it's a valet garage, so you're not meant to be in the garage. So we're trying to figure out how to get out of the garage. So we go, well, there's a stairwell. We'll go into that stairwell. We go down the stairs, and it's like key card access. And I'm like, oh, dang, we're like now locked in the stairwell. I, I don't know. So we keep going down. We get down to where there's like stored furniture. And there's clearly we're not supposed to be in this stairway. So we, we find a door. Adrian finds a door. Adrian finds a door. <laughs> she opens the door. We just come out in the lobby of the most like beautiful hotel restaurant combo I've ever been into. It's called something social, prime social. I don't know. But I, I felt immediately like, these are not my people. I don't, I don't like belong in this space. So we bust down the hallway, and there's people going around. No lie, within like seven or eight steps, I hear this woman say, Pastor McGee, which no one ever calls me that. Pastor McGee, you saved my marriage 15 years ago. And I'm like, uh, okay, hold on. We're in parking garage, trying to figure this thing out, bust into the deal. Here's this person. And as she's talking, I'm like, oh, I remembered you. And I immediately was like, I, I don't think I did that, but I was honored to be part of that. I don't know what her name is yet. I'm talking, still, my wheels are turning. But here's this moment where the church that I'm talking about 30 minutes later at this happy hour is so awkward and weird. Here's this woman, totally random. Like, how random is that? I shouldn't have been able to park there. I had no idea where I was. We come bust in this hallway. And she's just like walking by with five friends. I haven't seen her in 15 years. And she stops and she remembers me and goes, hey, God used you to save my marriage. We now have three kids and things are amazing. Thank you. And I just remember thinking like, what are her friends thinking right now? Because they're like going for drinks. They're like hanging out. And we had this moment right there. Okay, I'm telling you that because in the church, you have all this opportunity for weirdness and pain and redemption. Because all that pain is a powder keg for redemption. Now, it can blow up in all kinds of conflict, but it has the potential 
to see people actually redeemed because God redeems us in our pain. So it took me about 45 minutes. I remembered her husband's face and her first letter of his name, was able to search it in my phone, was able to track it down, and remembered their story. And their story is a beautiful story, but it's one full of pain where, where forgiveness was the next thing. And what she was saying was without that gospel understanding of what God had done for us, we wouldn't have made it. Because you pushed the gospel to the center of our marriage and the conversation, God did a work there. What Colossians is saying to us is as we understand the identity that's been given to us and our attitudes begin to change, our actions necessarily change. And it looks like two ways. One is expressing this bearing with one another, which is having compassion of heart, being kind, being humble, having meekness, having patience. And then it actually, on the other side, when there's an offense, moves towards forgiving one another. What's amazing about that story is I bet I also offended her. I bet there's moments in that encounter where, where as we were talking about things that were heavy and hard, I'm sure I would have said things that weren't careful. I'm sure I would have said things that also needed to be forgiven. But the point of the conversation that we had 15 years ago was about the grace of Jesus to be big enough for the two of them to be able to actually forgive each other. That's the goal of what Christ came to do, is to, to transform us and change us so that the real grace of God is now expressed and lived out in our lives. I wanted to stop for a second. Did you catch the way he says this? Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Followers of Jesus, have you ever spent time just thinking about how God has forgiven you? Like what it means for him to forgive you? How, how he's processed that? Have you thought about how complete it is? Have you thought about how much it cost him? Have you thought about how, how it's persistent? How it happened one time and that lasts for all of eternity? Have you thought about how complete it is? It wasn't just pardon. It actually moved towards transformation where, where Jesus says things like, I don't condemn you. And stop sinning. Because the sin is not bad things you do. Remember, it's the quest for some other identity. So you're not under condemnation. Now stop pursuing those things that are condemning you and you are actually free. He loves us enough to actually set us free. Have you thought about how extravagant it is? This you know, 200 or 20 years times 10,000 debt that he actually paid on his own. Have you thought about how he did it with weeping? How at the garden, how he understood the cost to himself. It wasn't just a lab coat that he was wearing when he said, you're forgiven. It was with his broken body and shed blood that he actually paid the penalty for your sin. And when you see people in the scriptures extending grace and forgiveness, it's often marked by weeping. If you're in the reading guide for the Colossians series, you read Joseph's story this week. Did you catch in the middle of that speech of what you meant as evil God men as good. Did you catch that he weeps in the middle of that? That as he absorbs the price of the forgiveness that he has to extend to his brothers who harmed him deeply for decades, how he bore that with tears in his eyes. Have you thought about how Jesus came in the body? He came relationally, he came incarnationally for us? Have you thought about how he died in your place before you even knew you needed him to do that? Have you thought about the fact that you were his enemies? You weren't asking him to, and he died to forgive you in that place. And he died to restore real intimacy. So you could be not just pardoned, but in relationship with him. The text says then, 
to forgive as we have been forgiven, which reminds us of our identity that God has done for us and the things that are coming out of us because of that identity. And it's a call to express those to one another. In, in your marriages, like, like this woman in this random encounter who it wasn't random in the last 15 years, like that is a ton of work for the two of them to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient with one another brought about something really beautiful. Because what God is after is not just pardon and forgiveness, it's actually full redemption and restoration. He says in verse 14, And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The goal of this is actually love. And as we close in and we think about the love of God, the Scriptures say is expressed to us on the cross, we get a chance to take communion with this idea of forgiveness kind of hanging. And let it hang a couple of places. Let it hang with what kind of forgiveness you needed that Jesus made possible. And let it also hang with the places where you need to extend forgiveness. And try in your heart to pull those two things together. The same way on the cross, Jesus pulled together His compassion and His graciousness and His justice. In His broken body and shed blood, Jesus pulled apart two things that, that feel distant and He brought them together in ways that actually God is able to be just by forgiving because He bore the penalty for all of your sin Himself. He, he paid it. So where you're struggling to connect what you need and what you need to extend, ask the God who brought those other two things together to bring them together in your heart. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus is the declaration that God has made a way of forgiveness possible. If you're not a follower of Jesus, as we take communion, I want to invite you just to pray and ask for God to speak to you. I don't know what you think about your own sin and brokenness, but, but the Scriptures say it is bigger than you think and it costs you more than you could ever understand. That actually your very life, it costs you. And so Jesus came to earth and died to give His life for yours so you could be forgiven. That's the invitation of Christianity. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, would you just pray and consider that? There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like. If you are a follower of Christ, come and receive the elements as reminders of what God has done so you can be reminded of the identity and then the attitudes, and that would actually lead you to actions. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Jesus, we say thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you that it's real and it has an impact. It's not just something academic. It changes marriages years ago in tangible ways. It's able to sustain people that are in painful, awkward church situations. Not just those churches, but our church. It makes it possible for us to bear with one another and to forgive one another. We are grateful and we understand we have amnesia. So would you use communion now to remind us of what you've done so we can live into it, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. There's servers in all the aisles. And they'll be gluten-free here in the middle. Come when you're ready.